0: kind of thing out back. Uh, we're going to get started this morning right away with uh, with Matt here for the pastors that are here at 9:30. The uh, rest of the campus uh, will be joining will be joining us for the morning. So uh, we want to we wanted to have a few minutes ahead of time with pastors to kind of get you the lay of the land. Matt has a little assignment for you this morning to kind of get your mind in gear for what we're going to what we're going to uh, to hear. Um, My name is Scott Rhino. If you don't know me, I'm the Vice President of Development and Enrollment here at the school, and I'm also the District Youth President for the Atlantic District, and uh, this has been like a dream of mine to have Matt here and share this material for at least two years, uh, and this Sticky Faith material really kind of is is a huge lens, I guess, of, or if you wanted a lens into my heart and philosophy for youth ministry, the Sticky Faith material is a huge kind of window into my heart for what youth ministry looks like in a local church. It formed a lot of the, my youth ministry philosophy when I was the youth minister at Presque Isle and still continues to form how I do what I do here for the school. And so I appreciate you coming this morning. It's going to be really good Again, if you're just kind of getting settled in, we're going to be together as pastors here just for the first hour, and then uh, we'll be... Um, will be being joined by the rest of the campus. So there'll be 200-ish or 180-ish students that will uh, descend on us in a little bit. But Matt has a plan to get us started here. Uh, If you don't know Matt, he is a graduate of Kingswood University and uh, has now authored four books and uh, has been involved in, in writing and researching with Fuller Institute on this material. He's licensed to share it and has an incredible heart for the church. I think what I love so much as I've learned more and more about the church itself is that um, much like we express ourselves with different personalities and temperaments that uh, that that those temperaments when filled with the Holy Spirit have this single focus of lost people a love for lost people a love for the Lord and a love for the church and uh, and Matt exudes those things. Um, and I'm excited to share him and this material with you today. Uh, if you have any questions uh, during the day, uh, Dr. Smith, who just stepped out of the room, but probably many of you have met, uh, will be helping you out today. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to do to get us started is just pray. I think that's it. Is there any other things I'm supposed to share? No? Okay. Lord, um, thanks for the opportunity today to to engage with your spirit and with this information. Uh, Lord, this is Uh, This is stuff that you want us to know. It helps shape the way we do ministry, the way we think about ministry, the way we strategize, the way we plan. And uh, Lord, I would just pray for an anointing today for us to hear what your spirit would say to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Hello. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Hi, guys. How are you? You guys good? Okay. um, So yeah, my name is Matthew, and I work at a church called Frontline Community Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's a Wesleyan church. It's actually um, a daughter church to Kentwood Community Church, if you're familiar with KCC and Wayne Schmidt. And uh, um, so it's uh, a 14-year-old church um, and uh, really unique kind of a situation. We bought the, uh, if you're familiar with a grocery store chain in the Midwest called Meyer, is anybody familiar with Meyer? Our, our church bought the Meijer Corporate Headquarters office building. Um, and so it's a 103,000-square-foot brick warehouse um, and in it, uh, has, I know some people have probably been in there. Have you been in there, Tom? You've been in there. Uh, anybody else been there? No, just one person. We have a, um, we have like a. You've been in there, Shane? Is that what you said? Um, we we built like a nine-hole like putting um, minute like putting green that we use for the community and trying to be as community oriented as we can and I've done crazy things like put bands up on the roof of our building for an all day music festival and and trying to engage in our community in that way but one of the biggest things that's happened for us over the years is we are a young church that has young people coming and we have had to sort through some issues when you just have young people coming okay So uh, a lot of churches have older people coming and no younger people coming. We have younger people coming, not a lot of older people coming and trying to sort through that problem because there are problems when that happens. As much as people don't want to admit that and you want to have church plants with just young people, there are issues with that. So as a result, what has happened is we've gotten plugged in and connected with this organization called the Fuller Youth Institute. And um, so what's going to happen right now is uh, I want to go through an exercise that I'm going to give you guys an assignment. So it'll be kind of quiet in here um, where uh, it's going to take... A chunk of the time until 9.30. So just letting you know, prepare, you're going to have a little bit of an assignment. It's going to take you a little while to do, but I think it'll be, um, I think it'll be helpful as we move into 9.30 when all the students are here. We don't have to cover the research and stuff that I'll be covering twice. Does that make sense? So um, I'll I'll give you this assignment. I want to talk about this idea that people tend to support what they create. Would you agree with that? People tend to support what they create. So what what ends up happening oftentimes when we are talking to people is we tell them what to do as opposed to them creating what to do and as a result being changed themselves. And so um, <clears throat> what's, uh, what's interesting is when you, have, um, when you have a culture where people are told things to do as opposed to experiencing it for themselves, defining it for themselves, and defining their own story, we oftentimes it's easier to just share what we want people to do as opposed to people defining that for themselves. But if we tend to support what we create, then we have to create our own narratives for what this means for our lives. It's not a matter of me just sharing a bunch of information with you. It's you creating what you believe is right for your context with what's going to get shared today. And as a result, that's actually what's going to change things, not me just talking to you. Does that make sense? So, what we're going to do is we want to cr- want to create something, and so we would share we would believe at Fuller um, that uh, that oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I know I'm going to mess this up. Um, that vision is shared stories of future hope, and so that's the way we would define vision: shared stories of future hope. If you can get people to believe and or, or recognize their preferred future, they're going to be in much better shape. And so vision casting, leading. Equipping, resourcing people is all about shared stories of future hope. It's getting people to realize what their preferred future is. And so when I was first, when I was uh, early on, when I was connected to the Fuller Youth Institute, a couple of years in, we um, had this exercise that we did, where it was, it was an exercise called shared stories of future hope. It's as simple as that. And what it is is um, they gave us an assignment. Uh, we were out in California, and there was a team of three of us working on this. And so you guys can do this separately, or you can do this with a team of people that you came with. Um, but uh, basically what they said was think of somebody in your ministry context right now and ask the question, what would happen, uh, what would success look like for that person, like an actual person, if, um, if they were, it was a year or two down the road. So one or two years down the road, what does success actually look like for that person? And then we want you to write an actual narrative, like an actual story that's going to, um, perpetuate some of these thoughts. And so we wrote um, two stories. That's what we, we were told to do. We wrote a story about a girl named Catherine, who was at the time a senior in high school. And then we wrote um, another story about this kid named Kyle, who was a sophomore in high school, who had some legal trouble. And we thought, well, like, man, it'd be great if he could kind of turn his life around, those kinds of things. And so we wrote these stories. And what ended up happening was this story that was just made up. Like it was, it was, it was as accurate as could be based on her context and his context, but it was just kind of made up. And so we, uh, we made this story up, and then what ended up happening was the story started to wreck us because we realized that what it was going to take for that story to take place was not actually being set up in our ministries to do. So we had set up our ministries in a way where we had overprogrammized a bunch of things, but if we wanted that story to actually take place, we were going to have to be willing to change what we were doing in our church. And I'll be honest with you, it would be, I would like to be able to say that that was really easy and I cared more about that person's life change than I did my own job and my busyness and the programs that I had set up and the things that I have implemented. It was really difficult. I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't, I didn't want to actually do that. But the, but the story and this exercise did what it was supposed to do because it wrecked me. And so uh, three months in, I thought to myself, I need to call this girl. I need to call Catherine and I need to tell her about this story. But I'm like a 30-year-old man, and that's going to be really creepy. Like, how am I supposed to do this? And so I was just telling Dr. Smith, I, I called her and was like, hey, listen, I'm sorry if this is really weird, but I, I wrote this story about you, <laughs> which is not something you should say to like a 17-year-old girl. It's strange. And so she was like, okay. Um, and so I told her what the point of the exercise was, and I said, I want to read this story to you because it's wrecking the three of us who wrote this story. And uh, so I read it to her thinking that at the end of the day, she was going to be really weirded out. And so I stopped, waited for her response, and she was sobbing on the other end of the phone. And what she said was, I had no idea that somebody actually thought that about me. I had no idea somebody actually thought that about me. I had no idea that somebody actually hoped for me in the future. And so that got me really thinking, like, wow, I wonder what would happen if we had a group of people at our church who actually knew that we cared about them and wanted what was best for them in the future. And so we got all of our small group leaders together in our youth group. This was, this was when I was doing student ministry. I oversee spiritual formation at Frontline now, but I was the actual youth pastor then. And so I was like, let's get all of our small group leaders together from our youth group and we'll do a day of training. And part of this is we're gonna have leaders write stories of future hope about a kid that's in their youth group. So they wrote stories. And what ended up happening was it wrecked those, it wrecked those small group leaders. So then those small group leaders were like, Man, what would happen if we could write a story of future hope about every single kid in our youth group who had a small group leader? And so that year, we had every single kid being, uh, they had stories written for them and hope written for them. Now, they didn't necessarily all come true. Not all of the details actually took place. But what happened was the intentionality behind, um, the intentionality behind these stories gave way for a new form of leadership, a new way of leadership, a new vision for everybody in our church, um, or everybody with small group leaders at least to follow. Well, then we started thinking to ourselves, if we believe that people tend to support what they create, then the issue is actually not um, long term, the issue is not us writing stories for them, it's them writing stories for themselves. So the next year, every single student in our student ministry wrote a story of future hope about what they believed for their future. And we, um, for high school students, every week that year, for that school year, we had at least one, sometimes two, um, students share their stories of future hope with every single other senior, high, uh, senior hire in the youth group that year. And what happened to the spiritual growth of those kids was absolutely staggering that year. And I think it's because people tend to support what they create. They actually started believing in their own story. And so we'll talk about this like in seven hours, Um, (laughs) literally like in seven hours. Um, But this guy, Steve Argue, who works at a large church in Grand Rapids, talks about this concept of self-authorship. And so if we can get kids, if we can get people in general, if we can author our own story, that's much more significant than me standing up here telling you what to do. Do you get what I'm saying? So... What we're going to do is there's pens and paper here, and we're going to take for the next little bit, and we've done this, I just did this at a retreat with about 500 high school students um, over New Year's, and we took about 45 minutes to write our story in depth. Um, Write the story in depth. So write it for, specifically for, somebody in your context. It's easier to write for a student um, who's graduating because of some of the stuff we're talking about today, but if you have a child, your own child, and you want want to write a story for them, write a story for them. If you have a story um, about your uh, like what you hope um, what you hope you and your spouse will live out, then do that but like whatever you want to do for a story, write out this story and process what does this next year look like um, it's in the idea is easier to do with children or students okay so you can do it for yourself if you want I'm, you're grown people you I'm not going to force you to do anything It's easier to write for students and children um, but take some time to process what does that story look like. I'll give you an example of what this was for me. My wife and I had actually never done a story of future hope together until the fall. And so my, we did this with our small group. My wife and I have an intergenerational small group. Well, the youngest couple have been married for about a year, year and a half. Oldest couple have been married for 47 years. And so we um, each were kind of in different life stages. And so we were thinking, what would happen if we could do this for ourselves? And so we each wrote our own stories of future hope. And um, my wife and I, for two years, had talked about moving out of our house that we had purchased in Grand Rapids, it was like near downtown, getting out of that neighborhood because the neighborhood was sketchy. Okay, let's just claim it. just call it what it is. Tom had been to our house. It was there was a crack house about two houses down, and um, I wasn't visiting there often, um, and so uh, which was good. But lots of people were, and we had been broken into. We had about ten thousand dollars worth of stuff stolen from our house in two thousand ten. So we had been talking for a long time because we have a three year old son about getting out of the house, two, literally two years, saying, we don't want him to go to these school, this school district. We don't want to be in this place as he grows older. Um, and so finally, my wife and I wrote our story of Future Hope. And one of the very first things was that we would move out of our neighborhood and that we would buy a new house in Northview School District, which was um, in the same school district as Frontline, and we weren't going to be downtown anymore. We'd be up on the northeast side of Grand Rapids. So after two years of talking about it, we write it down. Our house was on the market in two weeks. The house sold in two weeks. And February 6th, we just moved into our new house, a mile from Frontline in Northview Schools. When you write something down, more often than not, it will happen, because people tend to support what they create. And so, um, take some time, prayerfully consider what this looks like, and then, when we get into the session at 9.30, we'll start really processing through the lens of your story, what does this stuff that we're gonna talk about mean for you today? And moving forward in your ministries does that make sense any questions it's all good clear all right so papers up here there are some handouts on your chairs if there's some like places for blank or for notes or whatever if you want to do that but um, let's do that and then we'll uh, maybe get I might come back up in a little bit just to see how everybody's doing and stuff but let's get started good okay I'll take the silence as a you're really thinking and excited all right. Hello, everybody. How are you guys? You guys good? Cool. Okay. Um, so my yeah, my name is Matthew, and I work at a church called Frontline Community Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the northeast side. Anybody from Michigan in here? Six, <laughs> six one six. I have a six one six shirt. No, I don't. Never mind. I thought I was. I thought I did. I never mind. So Michigan, yeah. Cool. Anybody from Grand Rapids? Yeah. All right. Two of us. That's cool. Um, <laughs> neat. Uh. So, um, really quick, I wanted to say this, um, at, some, at any point along the lines, if you guys have questions or anything like that, we're going to be taking some breaks and breaking up. Um, if you want to connect with me on Twitter and ask any questions or anything like that, um, if I know how to answer your question, I will. The likelihood of me knowing how to answer your question is probably not high, because I'm an idiot and you're smarter than me. That was supposed to be a joke, but, well, no, it isn't a joke. You actually are smarter than me, but I wanted you to laugh at least. So, um, there we go. There good fake laughs there. Um, so, that's my name on Twitter. Send some questions in, those kinds of things, um, and I would love to connect that way. Um, but before we get rolling, uh, I would love to do a very dad thing. So can I show you a picture of my fam, my familia? So this is my family right here. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so that's my wife, Megan. She uh, she uh, graduated from here, um, same year I did. And then this is our little guy, Isaiah. And um, Isaiah just turned three this past January, and Isaiah is... Um, our pride and joy, I, if you guys heard me speak in chapel last year, I was here um, I think a year ago this time, um, this week uh, that I spoke, but um, Isaiah is our pride and joy. We, my wife and I were told um, years ago that we would not be able to have our own biological children, and so um, that was a really, really rough thing to navigate. It was a really rough, um, it was really rough news to hear, and if any of you who are, who are married in here um, and, or have dealt with infertility, you know how difficult that is. Um, to process something that you literally can't control, but that something that people are getting pregnant all the time all around you, but you can't get pregnant yourself. And so it was a, a really difficult thing to go through. But, so my wife and I um, actually had the privilege of adopting Isaiah. My wife was in the delivery room when he was born, and they actually handed him to my wife first, um, 14 days after we found out we were getting him and 10 days after we met Isaiah's birth mom, Lindsay. So it's an open adoption. And um, so it's just a a beautiful, beautiful story, and, um, and I miss them today. Uh, and I don't know, how many of you are parents in here today? So, I mean, wow, a decent amount of people. Um, so, I said this probably last time I was here, but I have become a weeping, sobbing mess of a human being since I have become a dad. Does this, has this happened to anybody else here? I cry all the time at things, and it's, embar- it's humiliating. Like, It really is embarrassing, and it's out of control, like how much I cry at things. So literally, I cry when he talks and when he walks, and I cry watching him sleep, and I cry watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and like, it is just ridiculous, and it's embarrassing, and so um, anyway, any other crying men in the room, can we unite? Yes, this is good. So like the eight of us will have a therapy session with Alan Lee afterwards, It's going to be awesome. Um, But uh, anyway... I wanted to show you that, um, and, uh, and then I wanted to show you this. So a lot of people, like, so I, I speak, and I, I have the, so I'm a pastor full-time. That is my full-time job. I love to do that. And as much as possible, whenever available, I do travel um, across the country and do these sticky face seminars. And a lot of people, so it's a lot on family ministry, student ministry kind of stuff. And so a lot of people say, well, man, you talk on student ministry, your family must be, like, so put together and stuff. So I wanted to show you a picture of this. This is my, uh, my wife's family here, and uh, all of us, and we're on the left And I just want to show you that just because I'm speaking about this doesn't mean that our family is in control, because when you zoom in, that's a picture of Isaiah freaking out. So the next time you think I might be in control or that I think I know what I'm talking about, and look how happy we are. We're like, just take the stupid picture. He was trying to smile. And then I love that his little cousin Taylor is staring at him like, what in the world is going on with him? So, um, yeah. Anyway, and everybody's just like trying to smile, and they all hate us because we're ruining the picture time. Hey, uh, this pro presenter remote thing just went away. What do I do? Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, so I wanted to show you those pictures in all seriousness, just because I really do miss them, and they are um, my life, and I love them, and uh, and I wanted you to see them. The reason why I show you those pictures, though, um, is also because what we're going to talk about today the things that we're going to speak about has drastically changed my life. Um, It's it's not something that I just speak about that hasn't actually affected me. It has literally changed my life. I am the prime example of how to... Um, be obsessed with implementing some of this stuff. And so we're going to talk about some theory towards, the, we're going to have three sessions this morning. We're going to hammer through detail or information. There are 93 slides for this presentation that we're doing this week. So I cut some out. We're going to hammer through this. But um, I, I, uh, this has literally changed everything about the way my wife and I parent our child. This has literally changed everything about the way our church parents our child. This has literally changed everything about the way that our our church parents other children and parents their own children. Um, This has changed everything about the way I view church. It's changed everything about the way I view student ministry. It's literally changed everything for me. And I want to be really clear to say that when I talked to Scott Rhino about coming in to do this week, one of the things I said was, if all I'm going to do is just come in and talk to youth pastors at different churches, I'm not really interested in coming because I want to talk to the entire church. I want to talk to everybody. And so whether you're going to be a lead pastor, or you're going to be a worship pastor, or you're going to be a counselor, or you're going to be student ministry, or doing children's ministry, or whatever, I believe in the most sincere way, this, will, this, could, this information could change what you, uh, what you believe about church. Does that, is that fair? And it's just because it's changed my life that much. Sound good? Is that cool? So I want to talk about what is sticky faith. What is sticky faith? So sticky faith comes from an organization um, called the Fuller Youth Institute, out of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. And so I'm one of the coaches um, who travels and and speaks for them. And I think that this quote um, from their research that they did, and we'll talk about the research in a minute. I think this quote sums up what sticky faith is from their research. And so this is Beth; it's it's a fake name, um, so none of the names are real. But um, Beth says this, it's really, really hard to keep your faith in college. It's the biggest challenge you'll ever have. It's all about the initial decisions you make and who you hang out with. It's really, really hard to keep your faith in college. It's the biggest challenge you'll ever have. It's all about the decisions or initial decisions that you make and who you hang out with. Now, for for those of you who are here at Kingswood, you're like, That would be a really big problem if the majority of you guys were struggling with your faith here. So this is not necessarily applicable to you, but it is applicable to my best friend named Brad who grew up in a high school, in a Christian high school, in a very conservative Christian home who went to Grand Valley State University to go major in political science. And when he sat in his first semester in his philosophy class and they told him that the notion or the the idea of the existence of God was ludicrous, it wrecked his faith. This guy who had been a Christian his whole life growing up, directly connected in his youth group, student leader, those kinds of things, it wrecked him. And I think that's the essence of what is going on with Sticky Faith. And so uh, some of you may have heard these statistics. Some of you, this is not going to be new to you, but I want to share this. The number that kind of pervades the Sticky Faith movement is one in two, or two out of five, 40 to 50%. 40 to 50% of the students that are directly connected in our youth groups and church will ditch their faith within about 18 months of leaving for college. 40 to 50 percent of the students that are in our youth groups directly connected in our churches who call themselves followers of Christ will ditch their faith within about 18 months of leaving for college. Um, What the research actually suggests is that it's the decisions that you make within the first two weeks of leaving for college significantly matter in the faith retention of a student. So the decisions that are being made very early on, two weeks, make a difference. There is some research to suggest that it's actually within the first four days of what happens when you leave for college. So when you go to that state university or you go to that college and you go to that party for the first time, are kids prepared to what's going to happen when they walk in the room and there's alcohol? Are they gonna, are, what are they going to have in their hands? Are they going to hold a drink? Are they going to talk to that guy or leave the party with that guy when the party ends? Um, Are they going to wake up and go to church on Sunday or are they going to sleep in? These decisions that they make are absolutely significant and critical. So while the first 18 months is really clear, it's also suggested that within the first 14 days to 4 to 14 days actually matter in a very significant way for the life or the faith retention of a child. So I'm a little cynical when I hear this statistic. And I remember talking to um, Kara Powell and Brad Griffin, who are the, who's the executive director and the associate director at Fuller. And I asked them this question as a cynical person. I was like, well, what about the kids who were forced to go to youth group when they were in church? Like, so they're forced to go. So when they finally graduate, they think to themselves, oh man, I'm finally out from the roof of my family. I'm out of here. Thankfully, I can get out and I don't have to go to church. And so these kids have already decided they're going to go. Like what about that? And they were said, actually, great question. What they found is that um, they found that out of the 40 to 50% of kids who ditched their faith, 80% of the 40 to 50% who ditched their faith intended to stick with faith. Well, that brought up a whole new question for me. Because the question no longer was, what about the kids who just want to leave? The question then became, if 80% of the 40 to 50% of those kids want to leave faith, then it's not a matter of those kids wanting to leave. It's a matter of how we're preparing our kids to leave. Are you with me on this? So the preparation that we're making for kids is actually not good. And so these kids who are intending to stick with faith after they're done are actually, um, are actually the really not able to transition because they're not prepared well. And that also corroborates uh, or collaborates with this research statistic or this part of the research that they found 15% of the students that they researched felt equipped with faith beyond high school. One in seven kids one in seven kids felt equipped with faith beyond high school literally in like seven hours I'm gonna do the next session or the last session I'm sorry I'm called sticky prep and um one of the things that um one of the things that we talk about is that the number one piece of advice from the kids that they researched was prepare us better that was literally the number one thing that they found was please just prepare us better when we get out into the real world we are struggling and, uh, and maybe some of you have had like a crisis of faith and you don't really know what to believe and you're trying to process and stuff. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're realizing, wow, I wasn't prepared well. Now for somebody who has been in youth ministry for a long time, I've been in like full-time paid vocational ministry for um, like, I think nine years. It's kind of a blur. <laughs> some of it's been painful. Um, but uh, <coughs> I, um, I, I think back to my first few years of youth ministry and how much of a disservice I did to the kids in that church. I mean, I, I really, it's painful to think of the things that I did that didn't prepare kids to transition their faith well. And so um, don't allow yourself to do that when you get into ministry. Uh, but thankfully, and I'll, I'll say there's some hope here, thankfully, the Fuller Youth Institute has found some ways that we're seeing that faith can stick and some faith retention. And so one of the things I like about Fuller, as opposed to a lot of other organizations, is that there's, their research is not depressing um, there's hope. There's actually hope with it. And so that's what we're going to talk the majority of the time about, um, but also talk about some real life stuff. And, uh, and so Eli, um, it was a student there researched and, and he said this, God is not the friend he was in high school. He is now more like the grandparent I only visit on holidays or special occasions. See, the reality is, is that what's happening with students is that students are oftentimes viewing Jesus like they do Santa Claus. Well, he comes certain times of the year, and if I'm good, I get something in return. But if I'm bad, then I don't get something, or I get a lump of coal, right? And so what ends up happening is that the intimacy that we are called to have with Jesus, or we are supposed to have with Jesus, becomes more like this buddy or this pal. And so when you leave school... And you're not in that environment that you were in before, because there's this buddy mentality of who Jesus is, then these kids are just, they don't understand how to take the intimacy they're supposed to have and actually translate it into their life because Jesus is just like Santa Claus to them. You with me so far? (laughs) And so um, this brings about the Sticky Faith brand or what's going on with Sticky Faith. And so um, the Fuller Youth Institute is a division of Fuller Theological Seminary. And what they did was they actually combined three different schools at the seminary, the School of Psychology, the School of Sociology, and the School of Theology to form the Fuller Youth Institute. And what the Fuller Youth Institute does is they conduct really well-done qualitative and quantitative research, longitudinal research in this case, and, and then leverage that research into resources for the church because oftentimes when you hear research, you just hear a number, but there's nothing practical attached to it. So you're like, okay, that's a great number. Well, what do I do? And one of the things that I love about what Fuller's doing and some of the things that we're committed to and I'm committed to is trying to say, how does this practically play itself out in the church so that we don't have to have those numbers that we just shared at the beginning? Does that make sense? Cool. So, um, so what they've done is they've created a brand. They actually, um, there's actually a couple uh, on here that Um, uh, that I don't have on the screen. But the book on the left is the Sticky Faith parent book. And you can hear me on this. I'm not getting paid by the Fuller Youth Institute today. This is a shameless pitch. Go buy their stuff. I'm not getting paid by them right now. So so the blue book is Sticky Faith um, for parents. The blue DVD is a Sticky Faith DVD curriculum for parents. What's awesome is to do parent, parent-like studies in your churches that's fantastic. So it's not just moms and dads watching this, but groups of people. Um, the white book is for youth workers, and so it's the same research, kind of a different application for it. The, the, um, the kind of aqua teal bluish-greenish book, whatever color that is, um, is uh, a teen DVD curriculum, and so that's for juniors and seniors in high school, specifically for juniors and seniors in high school. This fall, um, they released another resource called the Sticky Faith Launch Kit, and what's ironic about it is I don't have a picture of it, and it's actually one of the books that I helped them write. So um, it's Sticky Faith Launch Kit. It's um, how to implement sticky faith in your churches over the next six months, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today, and then they just released a book on Friday called Can I Ask That?, which is all about doubt and faith. And so in the next session, we'll talk about what's happening with students who doubt and actually that doubt can be a productive thing um, and what they found in their research. And so they wrote a book called, Can I Ask That? And it's eight hard questions about God. Um, They deal with anything from like, why is God so violent in the Old Testament to um, can you be gay and be a Christian? Um, Different things that kids are legitimately processing that we're afraid to talk about that we're just going, hey, let's open this discussion wide open. Sound good? Perfect. So, uh, and then I wrote a book um, that just came out in the fall. It's not working. So bad at this. There we go. Um, called Joint Generations, and I feel like it's a shameless pitch because you can get it as an ebook for free um, if you want. And if you hate ebooks, then um, you can get you can get it on Amazon, but you have to pay for it. So I don't feel as bad saying you can get it for free. But that came out in September. This just shut off again. I'm bad at this. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, perfect, okay. Um, so what do we mean by sticky face? So a lot of you are asking the question, what do, what do you mean by this? And so what we mean is this, it's three things, or three different subpoints. One is that it's both internal attitudes and external behaviors. So faith is something that's internal. It's something that's deeply personal to me. There is no, um, there is no, there are no grandchildren in God's family, right? So we're not grandchildren. We're not grandfathered into faith in Jesus. We all own um, faith ourselves, or we all should own it ourselves. I have to get a, an adapter for him if he's going to use my computer. Sorry. Um, so. Uh, <clears throat> So we have to own faith ourselves. So it's in both um, internal attitudes and it's external behaviors. It's, it's asking the question, like, what are the things that they're behaving or they're participating in? Um, a lot of it was like church attendance because there's this huge movement with kids right now to say, I can have faith, but I don't need to be a part of a church. And so part of it was, um, like, it's also external behaviors. It's both personal and it's communal. So same sort of idea that we desperately need, other people to surround us but it's also an individual faith that I have as well and so oh you got one okay um and then the last part is that it's in process it's not like we've just gotten there unless you're Wesleyan and you believe in entire sanctification I'm just kidding so (laughs) kidding so uh progressive sanctification right so um it's in process it's not that I've arrived but it's a journey that I'm on and we're continually growing so some those are some of the ways that they looked at what was going on there so um Let's see if this works there we go perfect okay so um so meet our students i want to talk about a little bit about the research and why it's significant and why it's actually different from a lot of the research that's out there if you've read some of the stuff from barna or from lifeway or the national study of youth and religion and talk about how it's differentiated thanks um, so one of the things that you need to realize is that okay so they study 500 high school seniors who were graduating from high school and going directly into college and so um, they, studied, uh, they studied these students, but what's really interesting and intriguing that sets their research apart is every single one of these kids were directly connected in church. They were all connected in church youth groups at their church. These, these kids all called themselves followers of Jesus. So this is the largest research study ever done of Christian, um, Christian high schoolers transitioning their faith that's ever been done. The National Study of Youth and Religion with Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton uh, from Clemson and Notre Dame, um, they, uh, that's the largest Um, research undertaking of religion and youth with kids ever done, but that's interfaith stuff. So these are Christians, and this is really important to understand the sample of what's going on there, that these are actually Christians. So all research has its biases, and we talk about that. We're not not afraid of it, Um, but research, while it's right, is also wrong, and while it's wrong, it's also right. Research is also how it's interpreted, so I just want to explain some of that. Um, 41% of the sample was male. 59% were female. 82% 82% live with both their father and their mother. Does anybody else think that's really high? It's incredibly high, right? One of the things that's interesting is that some of, somebody would go, well, that's, that's really bad that 82% live with their mother and father. What's scary to me about that is that the statistics are so high with that number, that percentage of mothers and fathers being in, in the picture, okay? So I think a lot of us could blame single-family homes or, or broken homes or whatever on a lot of this faith retention stuff. It, from our sample, that's not the case, okay? We can't use that as an excuse. Um, the median GPA is 3.5 to 3.99. Anybody else think that's high? Man, that is high for me, okay? I'll just be honest, all right? Barely past high school, barely past Kingswood. So, um, uh, but one of the reasons why that's so high is because in their sample, they were looking for students who were leaving and going to college. Um, now, that could have been, that could have been a junior college, it could have been a private college, it could have been a state college, it could have been a Christian college, it could have been a community college, um, it could, they could have been living on campus, or they could have been commuter students, it didn't matter, but they were looking for, uh, for students who went to college, and so naturally their GPA is a little higher. Um, eight, it, uh, this was 83% white and Caucasian, 8% Asian and Asian American, 3% Hispanic and Latino, 2% African American, 1% Native American, and 3% others, so that's incredibly high on the Caucasian side, which I think we can all see. Um, I think there are a variety of reasons why that happened. One of them is they were looking for churches with full-time youth pastors, and so as a result, the median church size is 500 to 900, ki- um, 500 to 900 people, um, and which is considerably high for the church in, for the church in North America, where the average—I mean, there's averages all over the place. I think at last I heard was like 59 people is the average church size in North America. So 500 to 900 is way, way, way high, um, and the youth group average was a lot higher than the average. The average youth group size in North America is 21 kids. The average youth group here was like 45, I think. And so, um, so those are just some of the biases that we have. Um, and uh, just wanted to make sure to um, connect about that. So before we move on, I just wanted to share some of that research. Before we move to the next session, we'll take a break here in a second, I want to talk about a few thoughts about the church and, a reason, and, and, uh, and some of the thoughts that get our ideas brewing about Sticky Face. So here are some, here are some thoughts. Is we love to dry clean, or we love dry cleaning. And what I mean by that is we love this idea that when our parents come to churches, we love the idea that parents drop off their kids to the professionals to go get spiffy clean and to go get taken care of by the professionals while their mommy and daddy can go sit in main church services and get fed. Then they go pick up their kids like they would a suit at the dry cleaner. Like what has happened in a lot of churches, student and children's ministry both, is that we have... Basically, we run glorified babysitting. You with me on this? And so, for a lot of parents, the most exciting time of the week is to go drop their kids off so that they can have a breather and refresher. We had a 72 year old grandmother drop off her second and third grade grandkids at our church service. And so, when they checked in, the second and third graders were trying to check in by themselves with no parents. That didn't fly at our church we're not okay with that. And so we called and said, you cannot do this. (laughs) Like You can't do that. And so we have this mentality in the church where we love to dry clean. We love to just expect a professional to do that. And hear me on this. I am a, I am, I have my degree in ministry. Okay. You will have your degree in ministry. And those of you who are pastors have your degree in ministry. We get paid to talk to people about Jesus. We are professional Christians. Like we get paid to talk to people about Jesus. So I want to be really clear. We, um, we are the professionals in a sense, but what's happened is we have lost the expectation that faith should be um, central to a home and we've put faith central to the church. Do you get what I'm saying? And when I say the church, I actually mean the church program service, not the church, which is actually people, not a building, right? And so um, what's happened is, is we've expected parents to go bring their kids to us because we want to be the professionals and the reality is and what we're finding in our sticky faith research is that sticky faith happens when we empower resource and equip parents to do it in their home and so what we'll talk about a little later is that the old model for frontline or the old model for churches has been that the church teaches and that parents reinforce and we're trying to say in order to get rid of dry cleaning how do parents teach and the church reinforces are you with me on this So we have to stop thinking that we're better than we are because we can't out-teach what parents teach at home. And we have to stop trying to do that. We're not that good. Do you get what I'm saying? There's one thing that's happening right now is if you're, if you're familiar with Orange, it's whatisorange.org. You can go to that website. And Orange is a children's ministry curriculum that's out there. It's probably, probably the best children's ministry curriculum that's made available right now based out of Atlanta. And one of the things that's um, interesting is they've done research studies. And they, sh- they found that many years ago, the average amount of time that a kid spent in church was around 48 hours per year. 48 hours per year. That number has dwindled over the last 10 to 15 years, and it's about 24 to 36 hours per year per kid in our churches. And that would be like children and students, 24 to 36 hours per year per kid. The, number of, the amount of hours that a kid is spending with their parents at home is 3,000 hours, and that number is stable. And so what we're trying to do when we do dry cleanings, we're trying to say, hey, bring them to us because our 24 to 36 hours is so much better and so much more valuable than your your 3,000 hours. And so what we're really trying to do is saying, take your 3,000 hours and pour into your kids first and then we are going to reinforce what you teach. And that means that we shift and we change the way we teach and resource and equip parents on a very profound level. That's one thought. Sound good? Another one is that um, we believe often in the church that students are the next generation. And so we have next generation ministries and we have next generation pastors. And when I went on staff at Frontline and I was the youth pastor at the time, my official title was next generation pastor. And now if you are a pastor in here and your official title is the next generation pastor or you have next generation ministries or a next generation building or whatever, I'm not saying that this is bad. I'm just saying we need to process and start thinking through some thoughts um, and maybe re-engage some things that we've taken for granted. Because when I first came to Frontline and my official title was Next Generation Pastor, I'd been there for a week and I went into my lead pastor and I went, um, hey, Ryan, I don't think I agree with my title, which is a problem when you've been on staff for a week. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I mean, I'm not trying to be a pain, but I guess, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I see students as a next generation. He was like, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, I guess, I guess I see students as a now generation that we can impact the kingdom of God no matter where we are on the age spectrum. And and I kind of feel like when we call students the next generation, then what we're unintentionally insinuating is that they don't matter in the kingdom of God until they reach a certain age, maybe like 18 when they start getting paid and they can tithe to our church, then they matter. And he was like, okay, well, what do you think? And I was like, I guess I think the now generation. He goes, now generation, pastor, it is. Just like that, my official title changed, Now Generation Pastor. He goes, let's put it on business cards. Let's put it on our website. Let's put it on our bulletin. Let's start calling you the Now Generation Pastor. And so I really was excited about that. And so after a few months of Now Generation Pastor, I started realizing what was very interesting is that if I don't believe in a next generation, I also don't believe in a has-been generation. And what has happened in the church, and I love you enough to make this awkward, so I'm sorry if you're angry at me. But actually, Well, no, I'm not really sorry if you're angry at me. It's okay. I'll take the brunt of it, okay? But here's the deal. There's a lot of young people in the church who don't care about older people in the church. And we treat them like has-beens, and they don't matter anymore. So we say a lot of things like the church, we just need to get younger. We just need to get younger. We need more younger people in our church. And while that might be true, what you're actually telling senior citizens is that they don't matter in the kingdom of God anymore. And so uh, the other thing that's interesting is that when you work in a church like mine where we're younger, and you don't have senior citizens, you desperately want them because you want what you don't have. And so there's a lot of older churches that are trying to become younger because they don't have younger people. And But when you don't have older people, you're actually trying to figure out how to get them. So in a lot of churches right now, what's, being, what's happening is we have a lot of has-been kind of generation churches, and a lot of churches are basically asking the question, how do you get senior citizens out the door so you can get younger people in? What we're asking is, now that we already have the younger people, how do you get older people in the door? And so if I can just be really honest with all of us young youngsters in here, please do not perpetuate the mentality of have been ministries. Please do not perpetuate the mentality that older people don't matter or they're getting in your way for your church because it's our church. So if I don't believe in a next generation and I don't believe in a has-been generation, then we are all today a part of the now generation. Are you with me on this? Perfect, okay, I love you. You might not love me, but I love you, okay? Enough to make it awkward. Another thing we believe is that it's a student's job to connect relationally first. And so Chap Clark, who's part of the Sticky Faith Movement, he works at Fuller, he's the vice provost at Fuller. Um, He talks a lot about, in his book called Hurt 2.0, he talks about something called systemic abandonment where we have systemically abandoned our children. And we don't even realize we're doing it because parents are kind of involved and they're there. But what's actually happening is uh, he studied high school students for 10 years in a public school. What's actually happening is kids don't feel like their parents actually care about them, even if their parents are actually in the picture. And so they're being systemically abandoned. And they, middle adolescents, 14 to 16 years old, from his research, are asking two questions. Why am I so alone and does anybody care? And if you ask yourself when you were 14 to 16 years old, if you were asking those questions, you probably were, right? Why am I so alone and does anybody care? And so what's happening is parents are there, but parents are bringing their kids to ballet practice and karate practice and soccer practice and football practice and basketball practice. And they're bringing them to youth group. And they're bringing them to church. But on the way, parents aren't really having conversations with kids. And kids don't really feel like their parents actually care about them. And so we've systemically abandoned them down to the core of who we are. Does that make sense? You guys with me on this? So we're finding this through research. And so um, I want to end this section. Um, I think, Brent, you, there are some leaders here and you're going to break up into your groups to talk about um, some of the initial thoughts on this research, and then we're going to move into the sticky gospel, and then after that, we'll take a break, and we'll move into sticky churches, and then we'll be done until lunch, uh, or we, we'll be done at lunchtime. So um, we're going to take a break, stay in groups, right? And, uh, and then if you, uh, yeah, we'll stay in groups. Does that sound good? We'll take a few minutes, and again, if you want to send me a tweet and you want me to answer a question before we move on to the next section, at Matthew is my Twitter name. Sound good? Okay, cool. All right, so, um, so a couple really good questions. A uh, couple really good questions have come in. Um, one is, uh, what about students who don't go to college but instead go out to the, uh, to the work world? Um, unfortunately, our sample didn't cover that, and so I really don't know the answer to that, and I truly don't. One of the things that's interesting, though, is that, um, and this is a little controversial, and their, their research wasn't scientific about this, But what they, because they weren't really looking for it. But what they found was that no matter what background a kid had or where they went, there was no difference in the faith retention. It was just equal across the board. So whether it was a Christian college, and Tom Cann had a really good question. He was like, is, this, is, what's the, is there a difference between a Christian college and a Bible college? I, I don't really know, because we're, our sample wasn't really looking at that. But there was really no difference between if a kid grew up in a Christian home, I mean, a, I mean a Christian high school or a public high school when they transitioned. When they transitioned. Um, and one of the reasons, what's, and one of the things that's interesting about sticky Face research is that it really has little to do with what happens afterwards when you get to an environment. It has everything to do with the preparation before. Because remember, the 40 to 50% of kids who ditched their faith, 80% of them intended to stick, right? So it has to do with the preparation. Another question was, have you met resistance in teaching these principles? And if so, from what age demographic? How do you address the issues?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, I thought that I was going to get killed the first time we talked about this at Frontline. And Frontline's 14 years old and super healthy. But um, I had somebody the first week we talked about this, and we talked about what we were going to do with student ministry stuff um, and changing some of the programming, told our lead pastor, I should put in my resignation. Okay, so yes. Yes. And it's because it's counter, it's different than what programs are, it's different than the typical programs that are done in church because we're asking people to really change things. So I'll talk about the change process later in the day. It's just the hook to get you, how to get you back. Sound good? And then what are some practical ways to get the dry cleaning parents involved? I'm going to talk about that in a whole session right after lunch. Okay? So right after lunch, if you want to come back, there's a whole session on how to, try to eradicate dry cleaning. So we're talking a little more theoretical stuff right now. This session's a little theoretical and some practical, but um, we'll hammer on in the third session today before lunch on some practical stuff. Does that sound good? This is what I got for now. I looked at those tweets. So um, I wanna talk about the gospel because what's happening with the gospel is that the gospel is being truncated in a sense in the way we are either intentionally or unintentionally teaching the gospel to our kids. And so um, here's some, I just want to talk about some interesting things they found in their research. One of the things that we talk about a lot is this idea, we call it the Red Bull ripoff. What is Red Bull? It is an energy drink. What does it do for you? It gives you wings. That's right. We've seen the commercial. And so in all seriousness, Red Bull is an energy drink. And um, AJ Pleasure was like, did you take eight Red Bulls to speak for eight hours today? And no, I took Adderall, which is even better. So <laughs> I really did. So um, it's prescribed, okay? So um, <laughs> but, uh, but I've got extras. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. 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 Don't kick me out. Um, kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, that's awkward. So um, some of you are like, what's Adderall? Um, you don't want to know. Uh, so the deal is um, I want to talk about the Red Bull ripoff because what Red Bull does is Red Bull gives us energy. Okay? It gives us energy. And Red Bull is really good if you have to do like an all-nighter at your youth group and you need to stay awake, right? Or, an all- or, or if you need to do an all-nighter for an assignment here at school. So we take like AMP or Monster or Red Bull or whatever. And so what's really awesome about Red Bull is when we have a ton of energy and it gives us the energy to stay awake until Red Bull wears off and all of a sudden you what? You crash and you crash hard And one of the things that they're finding is that kids who are being raised in our churches today are getting hyped up and hyped up and hyped up and hyped up and amped up and amped up and amped up and amped up on Jesus. And then they get past high school and they crash and they crash hard. And the reason why is because for them, Christianity has all been about a program. Like what's happened in most youth groups is that most youth groups care more about pizza parties than they do talking about Jesus. And so what ends up, think, what ends up ki- happening is that kids have this understanding that the gospel is actually about being entertained as opposed to being transformed. And so we talk a lot about this idea that Christianity, one of the tensions in Christianity is that we treat Jesus like consumer marketing product that we buy off of a shelf. And in, with consumer marketing, the consumer marketing idea is that you buy this and it will make your life easier. But when you, when you have Jesus in the equation, you follow Jesus and he will make your life fruitful. And so what we're expecting Jesus to do is we're expecting Jesus to change to my, said, we're expecting Jesus to adapt to my changing life as instead of transforming into him. So we're much more concerned when we think from a Red Bull ripoff purpose, we're much more concerned with Jesus adapting to me as opposed to me transforming into him. Are you with me on this? And so what's happening is we are letting kids get hyped up and hyped up, and then they're crashing, and we're not providing something for them afterwards. It's adaptation versus transformation. We live in the middle of it, and it is a tension we live in every single day. And so, and the reason why is because, and I'll talk about this later, is because we love to over things in the church, but the reality is, is that programs seldom change people, but people often change people. And so what we think is we think that the program is going to change people, but if you think about it, the program is just a means to get to relationships so that people can change people, right? And if you think about what you, how you've been changed and transformed, you've actually been changed and transformed through relationships and through those relationships having those conversations about what the gospel is, which is actually about a relationship. And so again, this is all the whole idea that we treat Jesus like we do Santa Claus. Um, we treat them very distant. And so um, we have, we're ripping off kids when, we, when they're being raised through our youth group programs. Does that make sense? Another thought, another thought is that the gospel, what they found is when they asked kids what the gospel was, is that as they started processing and explaining the gospel, it became very clear that the gospel to kids in our churches was about do's and don'ts. It was about a list of rules. And Dallas Willard, who just passed away, unfortunately, um, just a couple months ago, is a huge loss to the writing Christian world and discipleship world. But he talks a lot in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, about the gospel of sin management and how what's ended up happening is we actually manage our sin more than we do understanding grace from the gospel. And so the reality is, if you want to get into the Bible here, um, the Bible in Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by what? grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast and one of the things I love about that is it's not by works because if it were by works we'd be able to boast in our salvation and salvation would be about us and so I was talking to Dr. Smith yesterday and one of the things we were having a conversation about is that in Psalm 51 when David is confessing his sin for having an affair with Bathsheba one of the things he says is restore to me the joy of your salvation he's not saying my salvation He's not saying restore to me the joy of my salvation because it's all about me. He's saying it's your salvation, it's you. And so we can't boast in anything that we do to experience salvation because it's all grace. But what ends up happening in most of our teachings and churches is that our teachings and churches obsess over the gospel of sin management. And so we have this do's and don'ts things. Well, it's Christians do pray and Christians do read the Bible and Christians do fast and Christians do take a Sabbath and all of these things are right. Like I would not disagree with that, right? You do all these things, but then Christians don't drink, especially if you're Wesleyan. And Christians don't, that was supposed to be a joke. I'm Okay. <laughs> Tough crowd. So Christians don't drink and Christians don't smoke and Christians don't have sex before marriage and Christians don't do drugs. Now, do I believe all of these things? Like, yeah, I mean, I like I think that having the do's and don'ts are important, but here's the deal. If what ends up happening is we teach Kids, that the gospel is intrinsically based upon their works and their do's and don'ts, then when a kid gets to college and they have a moral failure and they do something stupid, and the question is not if they have a moral failure, the question is when they have a moral failure, because we all do something that's stupid at some point along the line, right? So it's not if we have a moral failure, it's when we have a moral failure. If that's the case and their gospel is dependent upon their works, then they don't believe that, that God's forgiveness is big enough to forgive them from their sins. And so they're finding that, they're, that kids are getting a gospel that is truncated and it's based upon works. Now, some people would argue this passage. Well, what, about, what do you do about the passage with faith without deeds is dead? Because they seem contrary to each other or contradictory to each other. And what I would say is um, the reason why that passage is in there is because grace leads us to doing good works. It's not good works that leads to God's grace. But grace for us in the world is so often dependent upon future performance, isn't it? So if you can get back to where you were before your action that was wrong, then you're in good shape. And so when we adopted Isaiah, one of the things we talked to his birth mom about, and we said, why are you adopting? And she said, well, I got pregnant out of wedlock. And so I figured that if I could go adopt, it would write, she believes in karma, basically, I would right the wrong that I've done in the world today. Like that's Buddhism. Like it's karma, it's, it's a, I'm trying to make things right so that things will be happy in the world and in the universe today. And so what we're doing unintentionally, I don't think we would do this on purpose is we are unintentionally teaching people a good works-based gospel and not a grace-based gospel. And they're finding that kids who have a good works-based or a gospel of sin management understanding of the gospel are having a much, much harder time transitioning their faith after they leave high school. Because we will all do something at some point along the line that is sinful and kids don't feel like they can be forgiven by God. And so we have to understand how to transition and think through, like, what does it mean to teach grace? Uh, and then the grace that we get is what leads to us being changed to do those good works. But it's not good works that leads to God's grace. Otherwise, we would never, ever get God's grace. Ever. Ever. It's God's grace that has saved me. It's not so that I can boast. Make sense? So when they asked, they almost left this question off of their study. They almost asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, they, they thought, well, I like, guess a pretty simple question, really. I mean, like, they're got to get that answer right. What does it mean to be a Christian? When they asked that, one third of the kids didn't mention Jesus. Okay, I'm no genius here, but the name Christ is in the word Christian. It's not a trick question, right? Like the name Christ is right there. But what's happened is when you have a good works understanding of the gospel, Jesus is not central to that. And so it's just about my actions. It's about doing those things. And let's be honest. For of those of you who are in church history, we kind of dealt with this like 500 years ago with the Catholic Church during something called the Reformation. It's kind of a big deal where Martin Luther is going, yeah, I don't know that I agree with what John Tetzel is doing and selling indulgences in the church, and I'm not okay with that. And so I believe in a grace-based understanding of the gospel. And so he posts the 90, is it 95? Uh Uh-oh. Is it 95 theses or 99? Oh man, 95. Okay, I got scared. If there's any church history people in here, I'm sorry. So 95 theses to the door of a church. And he was like, hey, listen, here it is. Like, this is what it is. And, And we are Protestants now. My dad would actually say Protestants, which is kind of funny. So um, <laughs> but we are Protestants, and we have differentiated ourselves from the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church has this good works-based understanding of the gospel. We dealt with this as Protestants a long time ago, yet we still find ourselves fighting with it, and we find ourselves fighting with good works. And I think it's because all, everything in our world today is all dependent upon good works. It's so hard to show grace today, isn't it? It's so hard to show grace. We wait for the future performance of others before we oftentimes forgive people. And I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. And so it's easy to show good works before grace. One of the things they did mention, the majority of them, is they mentioned love. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Will you love? Well, that's a great answer. That's a phenomenal answer. Except that love is oftentimes a good work, isn't it? And so love is an action that I do. It's a do or don't. Like I do love or I don't love. And so, um, that's, so there's nothing wrong with that answer intrinsically. I believe in 1 John 4 where it says God is love. If you do not know God, you do not know love. Like I believe that down to the core of who I am. But if our central understanding of the gospel is an action, and it's not that grace towards us, and I understand that grace is an act of love, um, but if, if it's just based upon our works, then we've got a problem at hand. And what we're finding is that kids who have a truncated view of the gospel or an understanding of the gospel struggle with faith after they leave. Kids who have a grace-based understanding of the gospel, where they believe that God's, God will forgive them for their sins, um, they transition their, ba- their faith much, much better after they graduate. The last thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about doubt. One of the things they found um, uh, is, well, they found some interesting things about that. One of the things that they found is that in their research, um, 70% of the kids that they doubted had significant doubts about their faith, which let's just be perfectly honest here, okay? At least I'll be honest and vulnerable, and maybe I'm completely off base, but, um, but I'm a pastor and I'm ordained, and I've been a pastor for a long time, and I have my degree in religion, and I have serious questions and doubts all the time. Like, somebody please explain to me how shutting my eyes and praying actually works. Right? That's confusing to me. And if I can be very vulnerable, I've struggled with the idea of, of like, prayer or miracles or those kinds of things. I've seen God work. I've seen God answer prayers. So I've seen it tangibly. But I go through, like, it's almost like binges and purges on understanding doubt. Like, why would God send people to hell for eternity? That's a huge struggle I have. And what's interesting is that I'm not alone in this. So just for the sake of honesty, just who has has struggles with doubt with God? One person? Okay, there we go. Right. Yeah. And for those of you who didn't raise your hand, you were lying. So um, <laughs> it's okay. God will get you. I'm totally kidding. Um <laughs> 70% of the kids who who or who, who they researched had significant doubts about their faith. Now, here's what they found that is fascinating. What they found is that kids who had a, um, the, a correct accessibility and safe place to doubt actually transitioned their faith better than kids who didn't express their doubt. That's interesting if you think about why, like, let's put my, my friend Brad on the, on, the, on the platform here. My friend Brad had all these questions and never felt like he could actually ask them. And so what ends up happening is when he gets to that philosophy class at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, and it's this public school, and they're asking him or they're saying the idea of the existence of God is crazy. Well, then he's going to take those doubts and start learning from that professor. And so, if we're all going to doubt at some point along the line, then the question is, what if we could get kids to start doubting when it's actually safe, or actually processed out? Maybe not start doubting, but actually processed out when they're in a safe environment. And so, I remember um, talking to Brad Griffin, one of the guys at Fuller, and asking him, "So, does that mean that if they struggle with doubt and they transition their f- I- I- and they transition better um, when uh, they transition their faith better when they struggle with doubt? Does that mean that you're like saying that churches should do like doubt days?" And you just bring all of your questions about doubt to, like, the church? And he was like, no, not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you provide a place that's safe, that kids won't feel like they're not welcomed or uh, feel, uh, feel like they're going to be judged for their questions, um, and they do it, and you do it in a safe environment, we're finding that kids are transitioning their faith better, which is why they wrote the book, Can I Ask That?, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to perpetuate the conversation that's happening that kids are already thinking. See, the reality is this. Almost every single kid that we have in our youth group, at least at Frontline, and maybe we're just way liberal, okay? That every single kid that I can think of at Frontline is asking the question, is okay to be gay and be a Christian? And so let's actually start the conversation about it. Let's actually engage in that conversation and talk with them about it so that before they leave, and remember, Sticky Faith is about the preparation. If We can get them to process through that when it's a safe place, and they can ask those questions. They can think through, well, what if I'm gay? How, how can God allow good people to go to hell? How does God answer prayer? Have you ever seen a miracle? Was, God, was, was Jesus God, or was Jesus just a human? All of these things are things that kids are asking about, and the reality is is that we must do a good job of resourcing and equipping families to help them, and we must do a really good job of resourcing and equipping kids to be able to answer those questions. So this kid um, was in our our youth group. Um, His name's Brendan. Um, It's still connected to our youth group. His name's Brendan, and when he was like 13 years old, he grew up in a broken home. He was with his dad for one weekend, and I remember seeing his mom on a Sunday morning, and she comes running up to me, and she was frantic, and she said, um... She said, Brendan was at his dad's house and he played with a Ouija board this weekend. And I thought to myself, that's a bad decision. (laughs) Like, okay, so talk to me about this. So I was like, what's gonna happen? She's like, well, I told Brendan we were gonna talk about it later. I was like, oh, that's awesome. She's like, yeah. And so what I did in the meantime was I printed off a bunch of stuff about why Ouija boards are awful and evil. I printed them off and I told him he needed to read it. And that's why we're gonna talk about it today. And I was like, ah, like let them process it with you. Let them own and sort through what this means for their lives. And so often, we want to just tell people. We want to just, like, infiltrate their brains and say, you must think this way. And what, what's going to happen, and not that it's not true when we do that, but what's going to happen is kids, are, kids reject things that they're told they need to do because they haven't authored it themselves. And so we'll talk a little bit about self-authorship later, but if you can get kids to author what they believe and author their own faith and author their, author their own journey, they're going to transition their faith much better because they own it themselves and they don't live vicariously through mommy and daddy or their youth pastor at church it's because they actually own it themselves. So the point is, is not that you just let a kid go rampant theologically. The point is, is that you guide and you guide the conversation. And this is why people reject a lot of this stuff is because they're not willing to have the conversation because it's much harder than preaching on a Sunday and just telling people what to believe. You get what I'm saying? Because it's all about the relationships. It's all about how we engage in relationships, which we'll talk about later. But um, anyway, so you guys good on this? Cool. Some of it's my opinion. Anyway, so um, you guys love me still? You guys okay with me? Okay, perfect. So um, so the question is, uh, let's break up into our groups. How are we perpetuating the Red Bull ripoff in our churches today? Let's talk about that. How are we perpetuating the Red Bull ripoff in our churches today? And then um, we'll go into another um, section. And then also, uh, wait. Yeah. How are we perpetuating the Red Bull ripoff in our churches today? Break up and we'll take a few minutes, okay? I like I was yelling, but because my microphone wasn't on. All right, guys, just a few questions have come through, so let me cover these, and then uh, I'm going to ask you for your permission on something that you might hate me for. But, um, but uh, yeah, Th- let me ask you this. Um, I w- it would be awesome, for the sake of some discussion, if we could go until 11.45 for this last session. Can you guys give me an extra 15 minutes? Yes. Dr. Smith told me I could, and so it's his fault. If, it's all his fault if you get bored or you fall asleep you get angry, get angry at him. He said you could, he'll take every email today, and he would respond back by 5 p.m. <laughs> You're welcome, Just if you get mad. Um, but it would be really good to have that. So um, a couple questions about parents and kids, which I think are interesting, is um, what about students that systemically abandon their parents? Great question. I would say this. The issue is this. Kids will systemically abandon their parents all the time. If you think about how you were raised, it's not the kid's fault. Okay, um, it's not the parent's fault, but it's not the kid's fault. You can't blame a kid. And what we have a tendency to do is we equate spiritual maturity with adulthood or adulthood with spiritual maturity. But the problem is, is that kids are spiritually mature, but they're spiritually mature kids. And so behaviorally, kids are kids um, cognitively, kids are kids. Developmentally, kids are kids. Uh, like we have, to tr- we have to start treating kids like they're kids. And so what ends up happening, and that's a great question, is because a lot of adults will say this, well, my kid just won't talk to me. It's not their job. It's your job to engage with them because kids will always fail us in some way. Does that make sense? Because they're just kids. It's only a bonus when they engage. It's only a bonus when they actually, like, I made my parents' job impossible. Like, really, I made it, I mean, I was such a difficult kid. And I wasn't a Christian until I was 18, but I really, really gave my parents a hard time. And what they did, which was so good, was they engaged and they loved me unconditionally and they set up support around me. And so our job as adults, and this is where I get a little testy and fiery, is Chap Clark talks in his book about, in Hurt, and he says, it is not a kid's job to go relationally first. And so when I put that slide up, what I meant to say is that we have this perception that it's a kid's job to go first relationally. It's not. It's our job as adults. And we can't expect kids to do it because kids are just kids. And so when I wrote Join Generations, Kara Powell from the Fuller Youth Institute, uh, this woman who wrote all the sticky face stuff, she wrote the foreword to it. And when I sent her the manuscript, one of the things that she challenged me on was, um, what you wrote about is you're expecting too much from kids, and I'm not willing to write the foreword unless you start processing more about not expecting as much from kids. And so I changed and rewrote a bunch of the manuscript, sent it along to her, and she was good, and she wrote the foreword for it. But she challenged me on it and said, you can't expect kids to be adults. And we think that kids should be adults. And we think that spiritual maturity is adulthood. Do you get what I'm saying? Spiritual maturity for kids is different than spiritual maturity for adults in the sense that um, adults know better, but kids kids fail. A kid should. My, what I should say is, adults should know better. Maybe that's what I should say. Now, holiness is holiness, and and sin is still sin. But behaviorally, cognitively, developmentally, kids are just kids. Does this make sense? You get what I'm trying to say? So I probably didn't explain that well. So we'll just move on. Um, how do you equip sticky faith in students who have no family support in their faith or for their faith? Super good question um we'll cover it after lunch in this, in this in another session the sticky family section in more in depth but we i would say there's a difference between biological parenting and surrogate parenting okay so wh- where parents are not biologically there we must provide as the church surrogate parents to take care of them another word for this is mentoring okay so i would say it's we have to distinguish what um, biological parenting with families, and for families who are not there, we have to provide mentors for them. I think it's our responsibility and duty to help kids be resourced and equipped through at least surrogate mentoring. Does that make sense? Um, does that make sense? Cool. We'll get to that later. We'll talk about it later. Um, and then uh, how do we engage the way we draw students in? How do we stay away from entertaining um, and that's from Joey Gorvette, and I don't know how to answer that question, so I'm going to avoid it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll get to that later on. Can I, can I get to that later on in the afternoon so we can jump into the session? Okay. Um, I want to talk about sticky churches and what sticky churches are doing to cause faith retention to be high. This is so intriguing. This is probably my favorite session that we'll do. Um, that, well, the family's one after lunch is going to be awesome too. So. Um, but uh, st- student support. One of the things they asked was out of, the f- out of five groups of people that you could receive support from, Who do you feel like you received the most support from? One is parents, two, adults in congregation, three, adult youth leaders, four, friends in youth group, and five, friends outside of youth group. What do you guys think was the number one way that kids felt support? I'm just curious. Friends outside of youth group? Uh, What else, anybody? Friends in youth group? Okay, all right. So, number one is parents. Fascinating, right? Parents, what you do matters in a very, very, very profound way. It's significant. Kids feel most support from parents. Now, do you think that might be a possibility um, that that's there because 82% of the kids that they research are with their mother and father? It could be, but what's fascinating is that the National Study of Youth and Religion, which is currently studying 3,000 kids, um, they're, I think they've been going for 16 years now. They started their study when kids were like nine. The National Study of Youth and Religion, which doesn't have as high a parent sample where parents are together, confirms the influence of parents being number one as well. Fascinating, right? So parents are the number one support for kids. Um, and the influence from parents is really big. Now, it could be influenced in a positive or a negative way too, right? So because we... Like, when, if you're a natural leader, you'll probably lead people in one of two directions. One is down a path that's really good. One is down a path that's really bad because you're a natural leader. So you need to be careful. Parents' influence might not necessarily be good, but they feel support in a, in a really big way. So um, here's the one I want to talk about now, is that other adults in the church were last. Other adults in the church were last. Now, what's really significant about it is... Um, a lot of people ask, okay, what, what did you find in your research that keeps faith retention high? And because fuller researchers and trying to get more, I'm, more I study research, like researchers have a really hard time saying something that's really concrete sometimes. Um, and so they would say, and we would say, that there were no silver bullets that we found that if you do this practice, you will get this result. Okay, so we didn't find anything that if you said you do this in church, then 100 percent of kids will retain faith. But we would say there are some silver shavings. There are some hopeful things that we're finding. And the most significant thing we found for faith retention of kids, the most significant thing is intergenerational worship and relationships are pivotal to faith retention. For those kids who had intergenerational relationships, the likelihood of them having a higher faith retention, uh, or the likelihood of them having faith retention was higher. And the reality is, if you really think about your faith journey, you haven't done your faith journey alone. I guarantee, I shouldn't guarantee because I don't want to make a blanket statement, I would suspect that every single one of us right now have somebody in our lives, in our mind, who spoke into our lives and shaped us into who we are today. It could be a Grandparent, it could be a mom and dad, it could be an aunt and an uncle, it could be a teacher, it could be a youth pastor, it could be a senior pastor, somebody who is older than us at some point probably spoke into our lives and we are who we are today because of them. And so if intergenerational worship and relationships are pivotal to faith retention, then we have to start asking the question about how we've programized church. Because churches are more siloed and segregated by age than we've ever been, especially when you get into a large church like Frontline. See, we have, we have professionalized staff for specific ages at our churches, which isn't uncommon than a lot of other churches. But the larger and larger and larger you get, the harder it is to do ministry, intergenerational ministry effectively. Because what ends up happening is you start breaking down and you start getting more and more silos in the church. And so um, if some of you are asking, how would you define intergenerational ministry? And I'll give you, honestly, this is the most oversimplified definition, and I'm sure there are cracks and holes in it, but this is just what I use, and it's the most simple thing. So some of you could struggle with this or disagree with it. I would say this, intergenerational ministry is an eight-year-old can teach an 18-year-old who can teach an 80-year-old about Jesus, and an 80-year-old can teach an 18-year-old who can teach an eight-year-old about Jesus that we can all teach people about Jesus no matter where we are on the age spectrum, that younger people can teach older people and older people can teach younger people. And so one of the struggles is that in almost every single educational setting in the world, it's almost always the educational setting is that older people teach younger people. But what I would say is that intergenerational ministry happens when older people do teach younger people, but younger people teach older people. And so our son Isaiah, when he was two, we lived in downtown Grand Rapids. Um, the city has about 200,000 people. Surrounding area is about 1.4 million people. It's a big city, so we would hear police sirens and ambulances and fire trucks all the time. And like eventually, as an adult, you just get numb to them. So I'm not even thinking about them anymore when I'm sitting in the house or um, or you hear them outside or anything like that. So what was happening when we got to like two? Uh, when Isaiah got to two years old, is he would hear an ambulance or a fire truck or a siren. And our son, I don't know where he picked this up probably because he's brilliant and he's God's child, Um, but uh, he's the smartest kid on the planet, is he would hear these sirens and he would literally stop and he would go, there's an ambulance. Actually, he said ambliance, which was funny. So there's an ambliance. And I was like, yeah. And he said, we need to pray for the ambulance helping people's ouchies. And so I was like, what? I just only missed something. You guys laughed over there. Never mind. you guys laughed at each other like something had been said. Oh, ah, yeah. Um, so what would happen is Isaiah would literally pray and he would go, dear Jesus, I pray for the ambulance helping people's ouchies, amen. Well, here's the thing that's interesting is that Isaiah, we're trying to teach him prayer. We're trying to process these things with him, talking to him openly about Jesus. But I don't think he really understands prayer cognitively. I think it just probably makes him feel better at, like, at this stage in his life at three years old. But, um, but here's what's fascinating is that It made me as an adult realize, wow, I don't think I've ever prayed for ambulances or fire trucks or or police sirens or anything where there's first responders going to help other people. And so my son picks up that there's this helping that's happening with these people, and he wants to pray for the people's ouchies who they're going to help. That is how we learn from people who are younger than us about how to follow Jesus. Are you with me on this? Um, I... Uh, I want to read this passage, and um, I uh, I don't have – it's going to sound terrible. I don't have a Bible with me. Does anybody have a Bible with them really quick? Can I, uh, can I just read a passage really quick? I want to read from Luke 2 because this is um, – man, this is awesome. Luke in the New Testament or Old Testament? I'm just kidding. Sorry. Kay. Is this uh, NIV, NLT? What is it? NIV? Okay. Because if it's KJV, I don't get it at all. So, um, <laughs> okay. So this is Luke 2, and what is, this is the story of the Passover and Jesus going to the Passover feast for the first time. Every year his, his Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the customs. He's 12, okay? He's not even a teenager. Um, and I understand that there were different age things. Like 12 might have been that he was an adult back then, but just listen to what's happening. Um, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it you left behind the Son of God in Jerusalem. Like, that is mind-blowing to me. Like, call CPS or DHS. There's, like, major parental neglect going on, right? Like, how do you leave behind Jesus? Can, can you imagine the panic? Like, oh, we left the Messiah, right? Like, it's crazy. So, um, but they were unaware of it. Now, here's where it gets crazier. So, and the... Re- the reason why this probably would have happened is because men traveled with men and women traveled with women and kids traveled between the two. So Mary probably thought that Jesus was with Joseph and Joseph thought that Jesus was with Mary. It makes sense to why it would happen. But, um, so, uh, but they were one aware of it thinking he was in their company. They traveled on for a day, the whole day. So then they go to set up camp at night. And then all of a sudden it was like panic, right? Like Jesus isn't with you. He's not with you. And so, um, uh, so they can't find him. And so, um, thinking he was in their company they traveled on for a day then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends when they did not find him they went back to Jerusalem to look for him and it was funny because I was speaking at a conference at Cornerstone University a couple weeks ago and somebody literally said, hey, it's the only t- time in history that God ever went missing and I thought that was funny so um, really theologically incorrect so um so get this so they go they go off for a day and then they come back for a day so that's two full days of travel and then it says after three Three days, after three more days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking him questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they're gone for two days of travel and three days they can't find him. And after five days of looking for him, where do they find him? They find him at the temple, sitting with the teachers and leaders of the law. Jesus is not in the youth room at a pizza party playing Xbox. <laughs> he's with the adults, the teachers and leaders of the law learning from them. And what's fascinating is I used to think to myself, well, they obviously knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He's 12. They don't have a clue he's the Messiah right now, right? He's 12. So they, they what it seems to be interesting is that it seems to be that in the natural construct of the way the temple worked, it was natural for younger people to be with older people. And what's also interesting is that um, the, Jesus is asking them questions, so he's learning from them, but they are amazed at his questions and answers, and so he's teaching them. Eight to 18 to 80, 80 to 18 to eight. That we have older people learning from younger people and younger people learning from older people. See, the reality is, is that we have to process, um, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna skip this stuff, we don't have time for it, so hold on, hold please. We have lots of churches, lots and lots of churches that are so siloed and segregated, and um, I'm not calling for the end of youth ministry, by the way, or children's ministry, because um, we would, if I would believed that, we would have canned our age appropriate ministries long ago. We'll talk about that in a second, but um, the point is, is that there are, if you would consider like a table approach, there are two different tables in a lot of churches, right? How many of you, when you went to Thanksgiving dinner, you would go to Thanksgiving dinner and you would walk in the house, and if there were kids and adults there, you would walk in, and then there was an adult's table and there was a kid's table. Clearly, you've eaten at my grandmother's house as well, right? And so um, what was interesting is that at the adult's table, there was oftentimes like really nice um, plates, and there were glass cups, and there were silverware and cloth napkins, and then you'd get to the kid's table, and the kid's table is made of what? a card table, right? And there's not real plates. There's plastic or styrofoam. And then you have plastic forks, which obviously they break in your mouth. And like, it's just so dangerous, right? And so, and then you probably don't even have napkins because everything's falling on the floor anyway. And, but you have these two separate tables and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, there's a time and a place for that. And, but what has ended up happening in the church that I think is a real detriment to the church, is that if intergenerational ministry is one of the leading, one of of the things that they're finding in their research that actually helps faith retention, and we have segregated our churches the way we have, then what are we doing in discipleship with the church right now? What are we doing in discipleship with the church right now? So we have separated, professionalized ministries with separate, professionalized staff. And our church, is, our church is guilty of this in a sense. So we've got our separate preschool. We just opened a 12,000 square foot children's ministry wing in our church. Just opened up in January. We've got separate rooms. We've got a three-year-old room. We've got a four-year-old room, a five-year-old room. We've got K through one room, two through three room, fourth and fifth grade room. We have over 200 birth through fifth graders coming to our church on a Sunday morning and they are all split up. And then we've got separate middle school programming that happens on a Wednesday night And then we've got separate high school programming that happens on a Sunday night. And so we believe that it's still important to have some age-appropriate things. And forgive me if this is a little too bad to say, but there has to be a place. A 16-year-old kid does not want to talk about masturbation with grandma in the room. And let's be fair to the grandma, she doesn't want to hear it either, right? Right? There has to be a place for age-appropriate things to be discussed, where it's not just fully intergenerational. Sorry, I used the M word. So, um, some of you are like, "This is awkward." So, I want to talk about the difference between multi-generational ministry and intergenerational ministry, because inevitably, I'll get this question at conferences, and they'll say, "Why do you call it multi? Why do you call it intergenerational ministry? Why don't you call it multi-generational ministry?" And so, um, the uh, so the simple answer is this: I believe that there is a subtle subtle semantics difference, kind of like the now versus next thing, which when you process it, it becomes much more intentional. Um, And so uh, uh, in the way you do ministry, multi-generational ministry is like the repeat button on iTunes. It's when you have multiple generations in the room, but they're not intersecting with each other. So you have adults and kids in the same room, but you don't know more about another generation than when you previously walked in the room. So that's multi-generational ministry. There's a place for it. Um, so sixth grade and up goes to our main services in our church. It's pretty multi generational, but we can't call our church service when people come in and they don't—they're not inter- interacting and engaged with each other in different generations. We can't call that intergenerational. We call that multi generational. It's like an awkward middle school dance where you have boys on one side of the room and girls on one side of the room. And what needs to happen, unless you're wrestling, where you don't dance. But what needs—what <laughs> needs to happen is that uh, a. The dude needs to walk across the room and go ask the girl if she wants to dance, right? And so, then there's, so what we have is we have a lot of multi-generational ministry happening. So I wrote a blog years ago for Fuller called All Churches Are Multi Generational, Few Are Intergenerational. So we all will at some point in our churches have multiple generations in the same room. The question is, will we get to know another generation more than when we previously walked in the room? That's the question we have to wrestle through. So that's multi-generational ministry intergenerational ministry is like the shuffle button on iTunes. It's when you have different generations in the same room and they are intersecting with each other. They're interacting with each other. They're engaged in a new way with each other. They know more about another generation than when they previously walked in the room. And there's a place for multigenerational ministry and there's a place for intergenerational ministry. And what I would say is that the big win happens when we experience the benefit of intergenerational ministry. Now, Fuller's research suggests that intergenerational worship is very profound for kids. So there is a place for multigenerational stuff to happen, and it is still important. But intergenerational ministry, that's where we're really changed, right? That's where it's profoundly different for us. That's where we have relationships that we won't let go of, that we can't let go of. Intergenerational ministry is when a 16-year-old kid walks over to the senior citizen in the church and they say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I heard your spouse just passed away. How can I pray for you? Intergenerational ministry is when you have a senior citizen that walks up to the student and says, hi, my name is so-and-so. What are you struggling with in school? Can I help you? How can I pray for you? Do you need any help with anything? Intergenerational ministry is like the shuffle button. There is an intersecting of generations. Generations. We know more about a previous generation than when we walked in the room. At our church, um, we just opened up this new children's ministry area. Um, we called it the block, and it's kind of set up to be like a neighborhood block, kind of like a family kind of thing. Um, and uh, we uh, really based upon a lot of this research. And so, um, But beforehand, uh, for the last many years, we had our children's ministry called the Fort. And um, it, st- it stood for Foundations of Righteousness and Truth, baby. Woo! Woo! Uh, <laughs> Fort is the most ridiculous acronym. Anyway, so, um, sorry, I'm, c- I'm cynical. Um, so, uh, so anyway, wh- one of the things we do is we have this um, we have this thing in our children's ministry, and it's like a glorified Chuck E. Cheese, and so you have this, like, store where you can get these things. We call them Fort Bucks, and you could, like, trade in Fort Bucks for these, like, things that you could get at this store. So, you won Fort Bucks somehow, and it was, like, this fun interactive thing, and um, you would trade these things in, and so you could, like, the less amount of Fort bucks you were giving away, like, stickers and temporary tattoos and, and, like, Chinese finger traps. You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys have been to Chuck E. Cheese before? You know what I'm talking about? So um, we had this store at Frontline, and um, it was this really, I don't know, it was really fun. And so one of the things we tried to do, as I asked a volunteer one time, as because I, I, I oversee children's ministry and the whole spiritual formation gamut, I was like, well, what's the average amount of Fort Bucks that a, a kid turns in? And so they said, uh, like, probably, like, three Fort Bucks. So we're giving away, a, like, a lot of stickers and erasers, Okay. Like, we're giving away a lot of that stuff. They're not getting big, like, scooters and everything that we have in the store. So um, we were trying to think of a way, like, how can we get kids to understand um, missions and generosity and giving and all of that stuff? And so we uh, we said, hey, we should take uh, we should take um, this organization we, we support, Haiti Foundation Against Poverty. Their offices are in our building, a big organization. And we should, um, we should sponsor a child. And then if a kid wants to give their fort bucks um, – to, or if they want to give money to, uh, to, the, to this girl at the fort store, then they could give this money and it go to support her in the orphanage. And so this girl, Safoni, we started supporting her. And when we started supporting her, this guy, this volunteer, awesome guy, Dave Langellier is his name, he said, hey, if a kid wants to turn in their actual fort bucks and not actual money, then wh- what we can do is I'll, for every fort buck that a kid turns in, I'll turn that fort buck into 50 cents of actual cash value. So if a kid turns in two Fort Bucks, then Saphoni will get $1 to go towards her, her child sponsorship. So that was a really cool thing. And it was like not actual money from kids, but is teaching generosity that an eraser is less important than Safoni, right? Like that kind of idea. And so I, uh, so I later on, I mean, this is a while afterwards, um, I was asking the people who were working in the Fort Store, I was like, how, how often does a kid give money to Saphoni? And they were like, ah, not a lot, like really just a few times and... I was like, oh, that's too bad. And then they said, but there was this one time. There was this one time, it was this 10-year-old girl, her name is Maria. And this 10-year-old girl comes up to the fort store and she says, Hi, I want to redeem my Fort Bucks. And so the so the teacher was like very excited. And she was like, Well, what do you want to get? And she said, Well, actually, I wanna I wanna trade my Fort Bucks in for Safoni. And so the, the volunteer was like even more excited and says, Okay, well, how many Fort Bucks do you have? And Maria reached in her pocketbook and pulled out 137 Fort Bucks and slapped him down on the table. And she says, Saphoni needs this more than I do. That is how we learn from people who are younger than us about how to follow Jesus. Because that night, I went home and asked my wife, like, where can we be generous to? Because this 10-year-old kid probably more generous than me. So, How are we challenging each other on all ends of the age spectrum? So we're not saying to eliminate all youth activities in ministry. So we would say this is a result. Was, we would say we believe in age-appropriate ministries with intergenerational opportunities. Age-appropriate ministries with intergenerational opportunities. And so at Frontline, what we've done to be very intentional about it is we've defined about 35 or 40 different ways that we can be intentionally intergenerational. We cut, um, and I'll, i mean, I guess I'll talk about this in a second, but we cut all of our student mission trips so that we could go on mission trips with the adults. And so we said, okay, when we do mission trips, we'll leave the same exact amount of spots for kids, uh, to go on mission trips, which was cool because then when a kid goes, you have one-on-one mentoring with, with, with people, right? So we said that, um, we did this one thing. You guys know the band Atlantic? So they're like some of my best friends. They were just at my house last Thursday. It was fun. Um, and so, uh, we, we did this concert at our, at our church one time where it was for youth group program night, and we invited parents. And we, actually, we invited for the whole church to come, and we said we wanted to do this intergenerational concert. And so we started planning it, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me, oh, man, we're not actually going to be intergenerational. This whole thing is just going to be like a multigenerational event. So I was processing and thinking through how can we be intergenerational about this? How can we do shuffle button ministry and not repeat button ministry? And so, the, so what we decided to do was we said, well, how about Atlantic gets up and they'll do a couple songs and then after they play those songs, then a question will go up on the screen. And so either Corey or myself will go up And we'll say, all right, everybody, you have to go to talk to somebody who's in a different generation than you. You could know them beforehand, or you might not know them beforehand. And so you could have a relationship or not have a relationship, but it has to be from a different generation. And so what happened was, I mean, there's gobs of people there. They they all broke up into, like, groups of two or four people, like that kind of thing. And they they were just, like, introducing themselves to each other. And so a slide went up on the screen, and it was, um, tell everybody your name. And then where you go to school or what you do for work or something like that. And so they asked questions and they started talking. And then we played a couple more songs. And then after a couple more songs, a new slide went up and it said, um, tell me about how you ended up at Frontline. And so they were like, talking more. And then we play a couple more songs. And then the next question popped up and it was, um, tell me something that you're excited about God doing in your life. And then the next question was, tell me about something that you're confused about with God right now. And then they would play a couple more songs. And then we got to the last one and it said, um, is there something in life I can pray for you about right now? And so at the end, we had all of these adults and kids praying with each other, growing in relationship with each other, intergenerational ministry. And then what we said was, well, hey, how can we make this go on a little further? So we said, hey, all of you who are in these relationships, whether it's new or whether it's been fostered for a little while, for the next four weeks, when you come on a Sunday morning, you have to find your student or your adult who you met with and talk with them. Tell them how your week went. Like, pray with them, maybe. You have to do that. So the next Sunday at church, this woman named Tanya comes running up to me, frantic. And she was like, uh, I need some help. And I need some help. And I'm like thinking she's dying or something. I'm like, well, okay. And she's like, I can't find my student that I met at the concert the other day. She's like, I can't find them. Where are they? And so I was like, well, let's try to find them. But I, who is it? And she's like, I don't remember their name, you know? And so... You're a good intergenerational mentor. I'm just kidding. So, gone. You're canon. I'm canning you. So, um, you're kicked out. No, um, and, so the, and so, what ends up happening is we're looking around, and then from the other end of the room, we see this little kid, this 12 year old girl, and she's like this looking around for this adult who is frantically looking for her. That's, re, not, that's, that's shuffle button ministry, it's intergenerational ministry at its finest. And so for the next four weeks, we had adults and students connecting with each other. There's a very good friend of mine that works in a very large church in the Wesleyan Church, um, one of the largest Wesleyan churches in the denomination, one of my best friends. And when I was talking to some about, about some of this stuff, he, uh, I remember he, one time he was like, he was like, actually, we do these intergenerational services on Sundays at our church. And I was like, really? Like, I mean, at a church your size, you do these intergenerational services? Like, talk to me about it. I'm curious because you're bigger than our church and it's hard to do for us. And so he was like, well, um, yeah, we have four a a year. And I was like, wow, you do four intergenerational services a year? Well, when are they? And he was like, they are um, Labor Day weekend. They're the weekend between Christmas and New Year's. Um, They're they're Memorial Day weekend and the 4th of July. And uh, so then I was like, well, what do you do in these services? He's like, well, we just get everybody together and we just worship together. It's really cool. And I went, so you're telling me that your intergenerational services are on the four lowest attended Sundays of the year, and you're not doing anything to connect with each other? Afterwards, or during, or any? uh, No. And I went, so basically what you're doing is you're just trying to give your volunteers a week off because they're tired, and you don't know where else to put them, and so you just put your kids in the main services. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. There's a place for that there's a place for it. We do it every single Sunday at our church where we have repeat button ministry or we have um, multi-generational ministry. And then some Sundays we break it out and we go, what are we going to do to be intentionally intergenerational? How are we going to learn from a kid different than us um, as an adult? Right? Does that make sense? So one of the things we talk about, this is brilliant. This is probably the most talked about stuff at the end of Sticky Faith um, seminars. There's this guy, Chap Clark, who's the guy who talked about the systemic abandonment thing. He talks about this idea of this um, this thing called the five to one ratio. And so what he would say is, um, this is this is a ratio that we all have in a bunch of different things. So like even the school here, you have a student to faculty ratio, right? So you, and, and it's like probably publicized somewhere on your website or in brochures or materials or something. And we have um, ratios in like daycare, or we have ratios uh, when you go on field trips, and so our our students go on to never the same camp, a big summer camp in uh, um, in Indiana, and we have a ratio, and it's one adult for every seven students. That's what the ratio is, and uh, and so he said, what would happen if you had like a five to one ratio, and you had like you know one adult for every five kids who were on your trip or something like that? What would happen if we created a new five to one ratio in the church, and instead of one adult for every five kids, we created five adults for every one kid. Did I say that right? And so instead of one adult for every five kids, it was five adults for every one kid. What would happen if every single family at our church or our churches started processing what it would look like to have, um, for families, they have five people surrounding them with support getting to know their kids. What would happen if you had five adults every single Sunday who went up to kids in your church and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm praying for you? Is there anything going on in your life? And so um, what my wife and I have done is my wife and I have been um, very, very intentional about this five-to-one principle. And one of the ways that this played itself out for us is uh, my, so our son, he's adopted, and you have to go through a, like the legal adoption process, and so we had him before we, he became legally ours, and um, 267 days after we got him, he became legally ours. I counted because it was a long time, um, and so we got to a courthouse, and what ends up happening when you get to the courthouse, and I don't know if there's a picture of it. I think I might have taken it away. Uh, I didn't. Here it is. So this is a picture of Isaiah at the courthouse. <laughs> I know, right? So um, don't get me crying. Um, <laughs> um, I'm a weepy. Okay. Uh, and so we went to the court and this is the judge and he's up there. And if the child is actually able or physically able to do it, then they'll actually hand the, the gavel to the child and the child cracks the gavel down and makes it official. And Isaiah was like 10 months old. And so he just chewed on it. It was funny. And so, um, I was like, that's probably mahogany. So, um, anyway, uh, she didn't seem to care. And then he literally threw it on the ground. I was like, Oh, dear Lord, don't crack. So, um, it didn't. So, uh, it was good shape, but, um, One of the things we said was, what would happen if the day he became legally ours, like the day he was actually ours, he gets our last name, um, and uh, so he's a depres, and what would happen if the very first thing we did was we did a child dedication for Isaiah, and we dedicated him to Jesus Christ, and we said, we are going to do whatever we can to commit to raising him in the ways of Jesus. And so we knew this court date was coming up, and so we invited all of the people who had helped support us along the way for $17,000 for this adoption. People gave us over $10,000 to go towards this. It was unreal. And so what would happen if we gave everybody an opportunity who helped us financially or through prayer to go through this adoption? um, And uh, we invited them. They were part of this child dedication and so we invited a whole bunch of people, and um, we gave them a homework assignment. And as much as you can force an adult to do it, um, and I've got tattoos, so I kind of scared them. I just flexed. Just kidding. I have a pear-shaped body, so um, I didn't scare anybody. So, um, so uh, let's be honest, okay? Pear-shaped body, Bartlett pear, even. So, um, I, uh, so I, but I, I, as much as you can force people to do this, I said, um, "Hey, listen, I want you to come with a homework assignment. I want you to write." about how you are going to help raise Isaiah in the ways of Jesus. I want you to write a letter to Isaiah stating what you hope for him, what you care for him, and what you think about him and the value he has in the ways of Jesus. I want you to write this letter, and then I want you to bring it. And so we had this big basket on our child dedication, and, um, and uh, we, we were collecting these letters. And that night we got home, and my wife and I counted 130 letters that people had written for Isaiah some from our church, some family, some friends. What we're trying to do is we're trying to intentionally set up Isaiah so that he has adults who are surrounding him. And what was cool was we had, um, if you were a child, we asked you to write a letter. If you were a student, we asked you to write a letter. If you were an adult or a senior citizen, we asked you to write letters separately. So you do, we, I said, you can't do it as a family. I want you to do it individually. And so we literally had like kids getting coloring pages out and writing. You can't even read them, right? Like, d- like writing all these things on there and coloring pictures for him. What we're trying to do is we're trying to set up a world where Isaiah is surrounded by people who actually care about him, who are older than him, so that he has intergenerational relationships. Um, at his disposal. And, and when you hear the phrase that it takes a village to raise a child, I would say it takes a church to raise a child as well. It takes a church to raise a child. And so if you have kids in here, who are the people in your life who you are surrounding with your kids so that they have these intergenerational relationships? And so my wife and I have really good friends. They're wedding photographers. Um, and uh, they, um, their names are Brad and Sam. And Brad and Sam know, they've been married for about a year, year and a half. They're in our small group. They know that their role as friends for us is to help raise Isaiah in the ways of Jesus. And I am unashamedly uh, open about the fact that we love Brad and Sam, but we want Isaiah to love Brad and Sam and Brad and Sam to love Isaiah. And so sometimes when they come over to our house, they don't come over to hang out with just us they come over because they're picking up Isaiah to bringing him to Sky Zone, which is a trampoline park in Grand Rapids. They're bringing him to a playground to go play with him. One of the things we also do is when we have people over to our house, and we have people at dinner at our house for dinner all the time, is that um, we, uh, one, is that we ask Isaiah to pray at the meal table, and we don't pray afterwards like his prayer didn't matter, Right? So have you ever been around a place where kids pray and then you're like, okay, let's get to the real prayer now. We want Isaiah to know we don't need another prayer at the table. We don't need another one. And the other thing we do is we, um, we keep Isaiah at the dinner table with us. And there's nothing wrong with a kid's table. Hear me on this. We're not calling for the end of youth ministry and all of this stuff or children's ministry. We keep, but we keep Isaiah at the dinner table and we also don't get babysitters very often when we go out to do things because we want Isaiah to be around other adults who we care about, who also care about him. And so instead of a five-to-one ratio, we're going on 130 to one. Try that out, Chap Clark. I'm just kidding, so. (laughs) Kidding. So I want to, whereas we wrap up here, um, I want to just talk about a couple more things. That programs seldom change people. People often change people. And vision is shared stories of future hope. It's shared stories of future hope. And if you can get people to believe in their preferred future of where they're headed, if you can get your church to realize their preferred future on what they need to do, then that change process that we talked about, or that, it was Victoria, you asked me that question, right, about the change process in, the, in Twitter, in Twitter, on Twitter, the tweets. Um, I'm so ADD, and I'm still on Adderall. Um, so, so, uh You had asked about the change process and how hard that is. One of the things that we've found is that as we go through the change process, if you can get people to realize their preferred future and what they exist for and give them purpose, then the change process goes a lot easier. One of the things we've also realized is that we had to understand that people don't resist change, they resist loss. And so we'll say a lot of things like, uh, people just don't like change. Well, that's really not true. They actually don't mind the change process. What they resist is they resist loss. And so we learned that from a guy named Scott Cormode, who's part of this whole Sticky Faith thing. He's he's a leadership guru at Fuller. And he's tried to say, hey, listen, as you make change, define what people are losing. So when you're trying to make change in your churches, say, okay, if we make this change, then what are you losing? So when we canned our middle school Sunday morning program so that kids could come into our main services because it wasn't effective, parents freaked out. It was the first thing that we tried, the one that people literally were like, he needs to resign. Like, Like they were so upset. And so we had to start asking the question, well, it's not that people don't like the change, it's that what are they losing? And let's be honest, what parents were losing when their kids had to sit with them was they were losing an hour. What they were losing was they were losing that hour alone with their kids. They wanted their kids to go away. I literally had a parent say to me one time, so our kids have to come in and sit with us in the services? Yeah. (laughs) Right, like, uh, yeah. And so what we said was... um, what, if they're, what are they losing? Asking that question. And when you understand what people lose, it's easier to make that change process happen because you can start naming it. You can start defining it and saying, hey, I know that you're going to lose these things, but, but let me tell you the value of intergenerational ministry. Let me tell you the value of intergenerational relationships and how it's helping faith retention. One of the other things is that you'll get a lot of churches who say, well, our senior citizens aren't on board with helping other people who are younger. And I would say it's probably because you just didn't cast the vision well. Give them a shared story of future hope about what happens when kids are changed because of intergenerational relationships and go talk to them about it. And what I guarantee you'll find is that you I guarantee you will find that those senior citizens want to engage in those conversations and the dialogue with those kids and they want to build those relationships. Because senior citizens in churches, no matter, oh, senior citizens in our church at least, it's very, very easy for them to feel out of place it's very easy for them to feel like they don't matter because we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families under 30. So one of the things that happened, which was so intriguing, is we did this thing called the Reveal Study. It's done by a church in Illinois called the Willow Creek Community Church. And it was a big thing that churches did a few years ago. And so you would take this study once and then you would ch- try to change some stuff. And then you would take the study again two years later. So we took the study and um, first time and the largest growing demographic at our church was 18 to 29 year old. 18 to 29-year-olds, which wasn't a surprise to us. We knew that. So there's like 100, I don't know, there's probably like 700 18 to 29-year-olds at our church. And so we we know how to reach young people, and it doesn't make sense to me. It's really cool. God has given us favor with that because the missing demographic seems to be like very high in our church. But the lowest demographic at our church was 60 and above. And so what we did was, it was in that time where we were making these intentional intergenerational shifts. And so when we took the survey the second time, the fastest growing demographic at our church was still 18 to 29 year olds. The second fastest growing demographic at our church, 60 and up. It was awesome. And what it was, was we gave senior citizens, senior adults, a place at the table that mattered. We said, You are valuable. We can learn from you and the spiritual growth and depth that we are missing because you're not here. Really, frank, to be quite frank, is um, is something that you can bring to the table. And so, um, at our church, where there's so many young people, we have um, the people who are in charge of our small groups that I oversee is as a couple, um, a volunteer couple at our church who are, have been married for 47 years and they're in their upper 60s. And it was probably one of the best decisions we ever made, putting them in a position of leadership to oversee all of our small groups. And there are a lot of small groups, so they oversee all the care all of the trainings, all the leadership for it, and what we have is we have people of all ages learning from each other. And uh, it's been so helpful. And so it's giving people a picture of hope. The other thing is is that stories, 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 stories communicate life change. What we think is that when people come to our programs and we have high program numbers, we're successful. But the problem is, is that just because we have a lot of numbers doesn't mean it's actually equating into success. Now, do we still calculate numbers, and do we have measurable numbers? 100%. Numbers are incredibly important to us because they represent people who are coming, and if numbers start dipping off, we start asking the question, well, what's different? What's changed? Why aren't we getting numbers like we did? And so, um, we, so we, have, uh, we have a rule that, uh, I don't know if I have time to talk about this right now. I'm not going to talk about it. Sorry. You okay with that? We have a rule at Frontline. So. We have a rule at Frontline that our lead pastor is not allowed to ask our youth pastor, Jacob, how many kids he had at a program night until he first asks, tell me a story of life change from your youth group. Because that's what we really care about. Tell me a story of life change. And so what was awesome was he originally asked me, and we had this agreement when I was the youth pastor, but, um, but when he asked me that, I looked at him and I said, if you're expecting me to have life change, I'm expecting you to have life change, Brian. And I love him. He's great. He's one of my best friends. But I said to him, so if you're going to ask me how I have life change happening, then before I ask you how many people were on a Sunday morning, I'm going to ask you to tell me a story of life change. So we're not allowed to talk about numbers before we talk about actual life change happening because of Jesus. We're not allowed to talk about numbers until we actually start talking about relationships happening that are pervading every part of our beings and souls. Because what we care about is we care about shared stories of future hope. And when you have story after story after story after story that you share, people will get on board with that. It's the best vision casting you could do is sharing stories of future hope. You with me on this? People tend to support what they create. Um, I'll talk about um, six intergenerational ideas. One is classes, like do Sunday school class, have a kid teach a Sunday school class one week and have an adult teach a Sunday school class one week. That's what we do in our small group. Um, we have an intergenerational small group. Um, is uh, We have all ages teach it. Um, is, uh, number two, we do service projects together. One of the things we do at our church and one of the ways that had to fundamentally change intergenerationally is we realized that all of the service projects that we were doing at the church... Um, were only really for adults. Like only adults could really do the service projects. And so we partnered with an organization called North End Community Ministries and they do this thing called Supper House. And every Tuesday and Thursday in Northeast Grand Rapids, they serve 200 people a free meal who desperately need a meal in Northeast Grand Rapids. And so um, what's really cool about it is that when you go there in most like soup kitchens or something like that where they're providing meals, it's like uh, like a cafeteria line. And you serve people cafeteria style, well, there are all these round tables everywhere, and people sit, and you actually wait on them, waiter and waitress style. So it's like, res- it's like restoring dignity to them. It's a brilliant idea that they've got. The system there is awesome. So it's like restoring dignity to people who don't really have dignity anymore or are afraid they've lost it. So, what's awesome about it is this a seven year old kid can take a drink order. Or a seven year old kid can take a drink order. It's awesome. And so kids go get drink orders, and then we take food orders, and we're all able to serve together. And what's an issue in the church is that we've got service projects, but they're more often than not just for adults and not for kids or not for families to be able to serve together. Okay? Um, Let me read a really quick statistic here um, that uh, is fascinating. but uh, Diana Garland in her book, um, Inside Out Families, is based on 7,300 surveys from church members. She said this, research shows that families already involved in service to those in need also pray, read their Bibles, attend worship services, share their faith with others, promote justice, and give more financially than those not serving. I don't even need to say anything to follow up on that because that's just awesome, right? Um, So one of the things that we've done too is we've encouraged churches to do a movie night and to literally show the movie up. Has anybody seen Up? It is like hardcore intergenerational, right? It's awesome. And like what it is, is Russell goes up to Mr. Fredrickson's door and Mr. Fredrickson can't stand him and he's like this crabby old man. And so then they start building this relationship and towards the end of the movie, what you end up having is you have Russell and Mr. Fredrickson loving each other. Do an intergenerational movie night, show the movie up, and then start having a conversation about why this intergenerational stuff actually matters and why you value it. Um, and so uh, another one is intergenerational worship, intergenerational activities, uh, mentoring and groups, and um, yeah, then on. So um, I want to tell two stories. Do you mind if I tell two stories and then we'll wrap up? Is that cool? Uh, maybe I should tell one. Two? Okay, uh, I want to tell this one first. Uh, so this is a picture of Death Valley. Death Valley, has anybody ever been there, Southern California? Nobody? Really? Two people? So, um, two people. So, Death Valley is the hottest place on Earth. I think the hottest recorded temperature was like 123 degrees or something like that. It gets, on average, less than two inches of rain per year at Death Valley. That's called a drought. (laughs) It's called a desert. Um, So, Death Valley is one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. And and it's really like like ecologically like things can't live there so what ended up happening was one winter, it was the winter of 2004, some freakish thing happened and um, Death Valley ended up getting dumped on with about seven inches of rain in a very short period of time. It just blasted Death Valley. And so what ends up happening is Death Valley returns back to its dry, arid, normal self after a while and everything remains the same until the spring of 2005 hits, just the next season over. And what ended up happening was Um, the entire floor of Death Valley ended up getting covered and littered in desert flowers. Uh, And this also happened in 2008, 2009 as well, again. And so scientists from all over the world, they come rushing into Death Valley because they know this is not going to last long, right? They know this isn't going to last long. It's going to get hot and it's going to dry up again. So they're all there. They're taking pictures. Scientists are doing research. They're doing all these amazing things. And what they found is that researchers found that Death Valley is not dead, it's dormant, and it's waiting to be awakened by something. So what ends up happening is Death Valley goes back to its dry, arid self after a, a few days, and it's waiting there, dormant, for something to wake it up again. And as much as I can encourage you, sticky faith is all about the potential of dormancy in kids to be awakened. The fact that they are alive and they can be awakened, and our job with Sticky Faith is to not let kids go dormant again. That's our job. Because we've got a lot of kids who are alive right now in high school, and we've taught kids how to love Jesus for four years, but what ends up happening is kids leave and they just go dormant. And so our job with Sticky Faith is asking, how do you prepare your kids who are in your churches, who are in your youth groups, who are in your ministries, your your own kids, yourselves, if you have your own kids, to wake up to Jesus and never, ever go dormant again? That's the first thing I want to share. The second thing I want to share is um, this is a picture of Mount Katahdin in Maine. And um, actually on the picture on the left right there is Del Heine. Do you guys know Del? I love Dell. He's great. So so I was climbing Mount Katahdin um, one time. This wasn't on this trip. And I was with somebody else. And we stopped for a break. And we were getting a drink. And um, uh, this kid walks by on the trail. And he's got a huge pack on. He looks like he's been in the woods for a long time. And I look down at his feet. And his feet are barefoot. Weird, right? So I'm like the extrovert I am. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Stop. Hold on. Hold on. Just a second. Like, dude, what are you doing? You're barefoot. And so he proceeded to tell me that he'd been climbing the entire Appalachian Trail and he was finishing the Appalachian Trail that day and he'd climbed the entire thing barefoot. Well, like immediately, I'm, I'm interested in conversation. I high-fived him and I was like, you are um, more rugged than I am. So, so I'm like having this conversation and well, what do you, where do you live? And he was like, well, I'm from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but I live in New York City now. And I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. And, um, and so uh, he says, well, what do you do? And at the time, I was a student here and I was like, I go to this college in Canada. It's this really small um, Christian school, and um, he was like, "Well, what's the name of it?" And I was like, "Well, the name of it is Bethany Bible College, but like, it, yeah, I mean, it's tiny." And he goes, "Dude, I've heard of that school." It's like, "Dude, no, you haven't. Like, you're clearly mistaking it. Like, you're mixing it up with something. It's just there's like less than 300 kids there. Like, there's not a lot of. It's really small." And he goes, "No, dude, no, no, no. i I've, I've heard about that school." And I was like okay, how did you hear about the school? And he said, well, this one time I was in New York City and I was in the subway and this group of kids from your college came and they started talking to me about Jesus in the subway. And so he said, no, get this, this is crazy. It's cray cray. Um, and so, so he says, so he says to me, yeah, I remember having this conversation for an hour with this girl named Saren. And this girl named Saren, or this girl Saren, she was, uh, she was a hippie girl and she wore flowers in her hair. And about then my jaw dropped because I remember a girl named Saren who was a hippie girl and wore flowers in her hair. Anybody else when I was here at this time, remember a girl named Saren, the hippie girl with flowers in her hair? Yeah, they met, okay, in New York City in the subway. And so, I, so I'm like, absolutely bizarre experience. And so I was like, are you kidding me? Like, he was like, no. He said, I'm not a Christian today, but I think back to that conversation all the time. She actually cared about talking to me. So this one time I was speaking at a conference and my wife was with me and I didn't tell her, she had never heard the story before and I was telling the story at this conference and my wife comes up to me afterwards and she said, do you want to know something crazy about that story about Saren? She said, I was on that mission trip and I was in the subway and I remember waiting for Saren to talk to this guy for like an hour in the subway before we left. See, what we do today has drastic implications on the future. What we do today has drastic implications on what will happen years down the road. And you may never know it, you may never see it, you may never experience it at this moment, but we have drastic, drastic implications as to what happens in the future. The things that you do today and the decisions that you make and the way you prepare your students to leave and the way you prepare your kids to leave and the way you prepare your friends to leave and the way you you do all of these things has drastic implications on the stickiness of a faith after they graduate. What we're doing actually matters. And my hope and my prayer as we leave, and I hope that some of you guys come back, and it is optional. You guys don't have to come back. But my hope and my prayer as you leave today is you process and ask yourself, um, what can I do to make faith stick on the highest possible level? I believe we all have a responsibility here. Every single one of us, whether you are going to be a lead pastor or you're going to be a church planner or you're going to be a counselor or you're going to be a worship pastor or you're going to be a teacher or you're just going to be a stay at home mom. We all have a responsibility. We all have a responsibility in teaching our kids to live out the ways of Jesus and never let them go dormant again. Are you with me on this? Um, I would love to pray for you and, um, and then we will get going. And, uh, for those of you who are staying, who thinks they're gonna, who are gonna stick around? So strengthen numbers, guys. Come on. <laughs> uh, one o'clock we'll come back, okay? One o'clock. So we'll leave right now. We got about an hour and fifteen minutes to go eat, and one o'clock we'll return and we'll go from there. Sound good? Cool. Um let me pray. God, um I uh I wanna pray right now for every single. child or student or adult who are going to be in the ministries that we will oversee moving forward in the future. I to want pray for every single child or student or adult who are um, currently represented in the churches that we're leading today. And God, I pray that we in this room, the leaders in this room, would have wisdom and direction and guidance and discernment as to how to lead Faith that sticks for a lifetime. That we're not just interested in teaching kids uh, for a couple of years what it means to love Jesus, but we teach kids um, forever what it means to love Jesus. So, God, speak to us um, maybe in a fresh way. Speak to our churches and our congregations that we're either at right now or we're going to go to um, in the future on how to change some of the things that we're doing in our church to be more productive on faith stuff. God, I pray for the families that are in here or the families of kids that are at home right now as they, um, as they process, what does this mean for my mom and dad or what does this mean for my brother and sister or, or cousin or aunt and uncle or um, other people in my church when I go back home. But God, I pray that people's lives would be changed forever forever. I pray that you would teach us how to do this. And so, God, I I love you. We love you. And the only reason we love you is because you first loved us. So thank you for loving us first. Thank you for giving us that example of what love is to us and the fact that we get to love you back. And so we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless, guys. Take care. Come back at 1 o'clock, okay?